Welcome back into the Royals Farm Report. My name is Joel Penfield. Joined as always by Alex Duvall. How's it going, man? Hey, happy Draftmas, by the way. Yeah, happy Draftmas. I am um, I'm pumped. The draft is on Sunday. So we're recording this on Tuesday night. The draft, as you guys may know, is on Sunday night. Um, Sunday's going to be great. So it's the Royals' last game before the All-Star break. You have the All-Star Futures game at 2 o'clock. You have the draft at 6. Um, minor League Baseball, full slate of Minor League Baseball that day, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I've got these schedules pulled up right here. They're still in June. But you got a full slate of Minor League Baseball that Sunday. It's just going to be – like I can't think of a time when there would be more baseball. Like I – is that like the most baseball you could physically get in a single day? I, think I would so. assume it is because I, I, nobody's going to be off. I, I would assume anyway. that's the case. Yeah. And then you get the home run derby and the all-star game right after that. Two of the better days in the, in the summer. And the, the home run derby in Colorado is going to be so much fun to watch, especially with the, some of the dudes that are going to be participating in it. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited for the next week of baseball. And then the and then that Wednesday and Thursday is just sad because there's none at all. Maybe you know, there'll probably be some minor league. I don't know. I don't, do the All Star games for the minor leagues coincide with the majors, or is it later on? No, they're a little later. That's what it I looks thought. like this year. Um, so this year we will have minor league baseball on the 13th, 14th, and 15th, and 16th. Cool. So like that, you'll have minor league baseball to watch. But you know, I hadn't really considered that the home run derby being in Colorado might be grounds for a spectacular show um i really don't know why that hadn't come across my mind but i was really i was just so excited to see shohei and matt olson and salvador perez that i really i forgot you know the home run derby in colorado so it's it's you know just another tuesday there um but in all seriousness it should be a good show and and having another royal so the, it just you know recently the moose was in it in miami right yes he was so moose got to participate in miami um, and so having another Royal in the Homer Derby just gives more significance to the night, um, for a Royals fan. So that's pretty cool. And Salvi, he deserves it more than really probably anybody has in recent Royals history. So, no, no um, doubt about it. good to see, good to see that excited for it. Um, but yeah, just this, this next week will be a lot of fun. Well, before we move on to, to the minor league recap stuff, I'll set the over under at 15 and a half, 500 foot home runs. 15 and a half, 500 foot home runs without context of how many were hit in the in previous years. I don't really know what to do with that. Um, so without that context, hold up, I'm going to go under, but Matt Olson and Shohei Otani in Colorado are intriguing. Like if, if those two guys combine for the overall themselves on their own, like, I don't know how surprised I would be. Like, I probably would be a little surprised. But, I mean, would it be really that big? I mean, would it shock anybody? No. I, I was pretty aggressive with the over-under there. I'm probably going to take the under. But it also wouldn't surprise me if Shohei Otani had four or five by himself. Yeah. No, I can see it. That's a, that's a good point. That, I'm, that's going to be something interesting to watch. That Just that week for Shohei. He's going to participate in the home run derby, start the all-star game as the DH, and then he's going to pitch at some point, too. Like, I know we're Royals fans, and I know, but you and I are baseball fans beyond that. And I hope that any baseball fan doesn't lose sight of what Shohei Otani is doing right now because we've never seen it, and it's remarkable. No, really, not even with Babe Ruth. Like I know Babe no. Ruth pitched, but I went back and looked, and I, and I didn't realize that he didn't start 
like in those years where he started hitting all the home runs. Like he was, you know, he still pitched a few of those, but um, you know, his real, his real innings days were before he was the offensive, you know, goat that he is. So, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's, he's been a lot of fun to watch. As Bob Kendrick in this town would say, it's not that we haven't the we haven't seen this since Babers, we haven't seen this since Bullet Joe Rogan of the Monarchs in the, Can- in the Negro Leagues. If you listen, listen to Bob Kendrick talk about it. Like that's that's your equivalent to Shohei Otani. Look at some of those stats; it's remarkable. Um, but moving on, I, I could go on a tangent about what Shohei is doing and, and baseball as a whole. I might do that on another show at some point. But um, let's talk about uh, let's go to Low A Columbia Fireflies. Uh, there's still some, some good stuff to talk about here. Michael Garcia is still killing it. Um, you know, Rylan Kaufman had a couple of good starts. Ben Hernandez is still surprised. But what, what else have you seen this week? Yeah, so the Columbia Fireflies go into Augusta, go two and four. Obviously not their best week they've ever had. Um, you know, Columbia's they've got some hitters, and they've got some arms. It just kind of seems like they haven't been able to put a lot of it together very often recently. You know, they got off to a hot start where – everything was clicking and it wasn't like they were blowing guys out of the lot out of the water, like quad cities has sometimes, but they were just so consistently finding ways to do enough to win. And it seems like recently they'll lose six to seven and then they'll lose one to two. It's like, they can't put both of them together at the same time. Um, but like you said, Michael Garcia is hitting the cover off the ball. And when I say that, I don't mean that he's hitting for a ton of power. His ISO still under a hundred, but he hits the ball really hard for a guy who doesn't hit for a lot of power. And maybe instead he doesn't hit the ball very hard, like his max exit velo is not very hard. But his, like, average exit velo is actually pretty good. So he can't run it up and, you know, hit the big moon shots that Kale Emshoff has hit. But he hits the ball hard so consistently that he's batting 304. Um, his strikeout rate is still lower than his walk rate, which is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Um, WRC plus of 132, playing shortstop every day for the Columbia Fireflies. He's been outstanding, even better than I really thought he could be. His BABIP is 354, and that's, and that's high. But for a guy who's a lot of line drives, that's not crazy. So, like, it's not in the 400s. It's not Erard Gonzalez at 426, right? I mean – 354 is probably not sustainable, but it's not that crazy either. So um, really good to see from him. He is Rule 5 eligible this offseason, which I noticed uh, just a few minutes ago. Um, I don't know he's the type of guy that gets drafted because he's not like – I don't think he hits the ball hard enough to, to, to make it. So I think the Royals can squeak him through one, one more offseason before they'd probably have to add him at the end of 2022. Um but he's hitting well enough that it's going to make some people think about it. And even if it's, even if it's not something that's realistic, it, people are going to at least have to think about it. Yeah, no, I, I think it's so impressive to see Markel, Michael Garcia. When you look at the stats and you see a 21-year-old in really his first full pro season, and he's walking more than he's striking out. Like that, that is very impressive and I think a, a sign of good things to come. And if he can hit the ball with a little more regularity like for, for power, then this is the dude that's going to shoot up prospect rankings very quickly for the, for this organization. And there's, there's still plenty of time for him. And it, it is very exciting to see early on. Kale Emshoff is still striking out a lot, but he's got some of the easiest power on that team and in the organization, especially the other way. When you watch him just flick balls to right field with the power that he does, it's pretty remarkable. He can cut down on that strikeout rate. We're, we're looking at a, a dude that again, can, can continue to move up and, and have a little bit of a big league profile. Think. I don't know. I, he's probably striking out too much in low A for that, but 
the kind of batted ball profile that he has is pretty remarkable right now. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of like Mike Zanino, where I know Zanino, or at least I'm I'm pretty sure Zanino didn't strike out like that. We're talking about a guy who's just got a ton of raw power. And Emshoff, you know, the defensive report on him coming out of Little Rock was good, but he's been really impressive, I think. I, I don't know, you know, we'll have to wait for like midseason reports to come out and to see what everybody else thinks about him. I think he's been outstanding. I have loved what I've seen from him handling a pitching staff, blocking balls behind the plate, his arm behind the plate. I've been impressed. Um, I think the swing and the miss is unsustainable at the moment, and I don't know how that factors in going forward. Maybe it's um, a refining pitch selection. I don't know what that looks like for him. It is a little concerning, but like you said, the tools in the defense final plate have been so good that I kind of wonder how much um, – the swing and miss does matter for, for a catcher specifically and, and really only for a catcher. Yeah. And the way I look at catchers for the most part, like if you're really good defensively, which you give me with the bat is just an added bonus, but with some of the profiles, like I think it a Zanino comp is very interesting. I don't think that he can get to like all-star level like we've seen with Mike Zanino now, but it's a dude that's going to run into a couple and he's going to play really good defense. And that profiles at the big league level in some capacity. Yeah, I should add really quick too. When I do when I do player comps, I don't like to be Harold Reynolds. Like he's gonna be, you know, Jeff Kent. Um, it's more for me, like not in terms of value, just like playing style. So, yeah. like you said, he's not gonna be the all star level of Zeno, but can he be like that type of player in a backup role, or maybe like the third catcher on a forty man roster? You know, maybe. Yeah. Moving on to the Quad Cities River Bandits, they just keep winning. It's just what this team has done all year. One of the best records in, in all of minor league baseball, regardless of level. Uh, you know, our guy Vinny just, just keeps on hitting. He was the big league – or he was the uh, high A central player of the week uh, prior to our, our, pre- our recording last week. Uh, you know, where Asa Lacey turned in probably his best performance of the season so far with nine strikeouts and only one walk, uh, only one run in six innings. Uh, I think – He's really starting to turn a corner as well, which is very, very encouraging. Agreed. Um, and I went back and, and, and kind of flipped through some some of that star. I still haven't watched the whole thing. Um, he just – it didn't look more comfortable. It just looked more refined. Like maybe, maybe I just – I don't know. Maybe him in a college uniform is <laughs> skewing – my view of what he looks like. I still don't make his mechanics look as fluid as they did in, at A&M, but it looked more like of a refined machine in, in the little bits of it that I saw. And so, you know, is it was his problems always mechanical? I don't know, but it did look like it was coming back to earth a little bit. It did look really, it looked more repetitive. It looked more consistent. And so that those are all good things. Um, like you said, Vinny Pasquantino just continues to hit the cover off the ball. One guy uh, for Quad Cities that I did not realize, Tucker Bradley still has a higher WRC plus than Vinny Pasquantino does at high A. Tucker Bradley only has 129 plate appearances to Vinny's 233. Um, so he hadn't, you know, he hadn't been there as long. He's striking out more. He's also walking more. Um, 
he's having a, a wild Babbitt. So we just talked about with uh, Michael Garcia's Babbitt, you know, Tucker Bradley's is at 405. That is unsustainable. That will come down. And when it comes down, Vinny Pasquantino is hitting for more power. So those, th- th- that'll wash. Um, but Tucker Bradley's really impressed me. It's not what I thought it was. Like the, the film that I saw on him from Georgia, I really thought that he would hit for more power. And it's not like he's not hitting for power. It's just, it's different. It's more of like an Andrew Benintendi power where there's, there's doubles, there's a few triples and there's, there's some home runs, but it's not like, you know, Jack Peterson where it's like, here it comes. And if I miss, I miss, but I'm going to hit this ball as hard as I can. It's not that. So, um, been kind of interesting to watch him. Um, you know, he's hitting ninth in that lineup every day, which is, which is interesting I don't think it's a knock necessarily. I think it's something we've seen the organization do this year with um, Rudy Martin in Northwest Arkansas as well. Like he was always hitting better than the nine hole in that lineup, but they just left him there because it rolls the lineup over. So maybe it's something they're trying. I I really don't know why he's hitting ninth. I really don't know that it matters. Um, I do want to point out though, moving away from Tucker Bradley, Nick Lofton, Got his WRC plus over 100 this week. Uh, he had a really good week. His on base is 330 now um, with an OPS right around 750, WRC plus at 106. So he got off to a slow start. He's still not striking out. He's still making a lot of good contact. When he was drafted, I really didn't care for the Whit Merrifield comp, but I see it more and more all the time. Like I get it now from watching him every single day. So uh, there could be there could be some Whit Merrifield type of player in there um been really impressed with him so far this season going back to ace lacy real quick so he's so far this season struck out 67 batters and walked 29 but that walk number continues to come down so that first month five starts in may 23 strikeouts 16 walks when he was all completely all over the place in june he was 35 strikeouts to 12 walks and then through one start in july nine strikeouts to one walk so we're starting to see that trend of the uh, the command is starting to come back to him a little bit. He was never, he's never been an elite command guy, but we're maybe starting to see him refine everything a little bit. He's starting to come into his own. It's just part of getting comfortable in Pro Bowl. So I think people that were really sounding the five-alarm five, five alarm fire on Asa Lacey walking a bunch of dudes, I think it was a little premature. Definitely something to keep on our radar, but it seems to be kind of starting to trend in the other direction now. Agreed. Let's um, roll into Northwest Arkansas. Northwest Arkansas went in and made a mess of Springfield. Um, they go five and two down there. They had a doubleheader, so they ended up playing seven games. Um, they just look better all the time. So, you, like you talk about where Columbia started off hot and then has kind of progressively cooled off. Northwest Arkansas is doing the opposite. Northwest Arkansas got off to a little bit of a slow start as a team and has just been knocking folks down uh, of late. Nick Prado is having one of the best seasons at double-A by a 22-year-old ever. Um, he has just been really, really good. And, you know, I I don't think his stats project perfectly to Major League Baseball because the K rate's still a little high. But the improvements that he's – his OPS is still over 1,000, right? So the, the improvements he's made from 2019 are just so cool to watch, man. And he – and excuse me. He and Rudy Martin and MJ Melendez, Bobby Witt Jr., Clay Dungan 
are making a mess of double A right now. And it's been a lot of fun to watch. Um, so excited to see how this progresses for them. Um, I really do think this is for real. This is something that, that'll stick. This is something that um, we're going to see have an impact at the big leagues as soon as, you know, sometime in 2022. So um, really cool to see down there. Austin Cox made a good start. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Del Rosario made a good start. So, um, yeah, that's a quick little recap on my end for double A. And I, I don't have much else. Uh, you know, it's the same three or four guys every week, and that's not a bad thing. That means they're performing. That means we have reason to, to talk about them and, and praise these guys because they are playing really, really good baseball right now and, and proving why they should be talked about. And then you have Nick Prado, Bobby Wood Jr. going to the Future Stars game, the Futures game, whatever they call it. Um, the fact that Nick Prado is back on the top 100 prospects list and going to the Futures game after the 2019 he had, like we talked about him. So last week, uh, it's nothing short of remarkable. And he continues to hit, he continues to progress, and looks like a dude that could have an impact at the big league level a lot sooner than we really thought uh, two years ago. It is... I will never not be amazed at what he is doing right now. And MJ Melendez, too. He's a guy that's completely turned things around as well. Yeah, agreed 100%. Um, in Omaha, Omaha goes two and four. Omaha got gutted by the big league team. Also had to deal with some injuries and some other unforeseen things that they kind of lost a few of their best players. With that said, um, Edward Olivares is back. He is back in Omaha, so his transaction train continues. Um, I don't have a lot to say about Omaha. They've they've kind of been they've been gutted a little bit. Jackson Coar struck out ten guys in five innings. Daniel Lynch, I think, had a had a start where he gave up ten hits, four runs, but also had six strikeouts and no walks. So, I mean, I, I really don't know what to what to make of all that. I think it's you know, I think it's with both those guys, it is a really good sign that the stuff is going to play, that the stuff has been really good. It's really just a matter of refining pitchability. And that's one thing that if you're going to make the argument they were rushed to the big leagues, it would start with their pitchability and their command and their sequencing and all those things. And I think part of that is the coaching staff. I think part of the, is that part of that is the development staff. And part of it is Chris Bubich never pitched it. Double A, Daniel Lynch never pitched at double A. So, um, you know, some of these guys, I don't want to say they were rushed because their stuff's good enough. It's just getting them to learn how to handle upper level hitters um, has been a work in progress. But I do think we're seeing, we're seeing progress there. Uh, and, that's, and that's really all I got for Omaha this week. Yeah. It, uh, we would be remiss. Rudy Martin gets the promotion to triple A and has started six for 16 up there, hit a bomb the other night. Uh, I don't know what to make of Rudy Martin. I don't know what kind of big league profile he has, but it's been really cool to see him mash the ball the way he has this year. Um, it, it's a, it's really cool. Like it, I always love rooting for, for guys like him, Nikki, you know, dudes like that, that can run, you know, just run all over the place, you know, hit the spray the ball everywhere, play a good outfield. Like there's just something about that that I really enjoy watching. Yeah, and he's a you know it's easy to root for good people, and Rudy's a great kid. We've done um, we've done interviews with him here at the site before. I think it was was it him and DJ Burt, or was it Nick Heath and DJ Burt? Who? 
Oh man! Oh, it was, the, the well, video had, of the Old Town Road. Oh, <laughs> the I think, gas it, I, think station. That was, I think that was Nick and Rudy Martin. It had, I think it was. Yeah, like DJ Burt was involved in that somehow. I'm I think sure, he's I'm with sure Arizona that. too, isn't he now? DJ Burt. No, I, I can't remember. Yeah, but but yeah, the, I mean, just you know, the types of people that the Royals employ and that the Royals have um, consistently coming through their system is it makes them easy to root for. And Rudy certainly fits the bill. Great kid. Really happy to see him having success and, and being healthy, by the way. That too. Yeah, that's a huge, huge part of it. Uh, that wraps up this week, and we'll, you know, we'll do it all again next week. But for now, again, as Alex and I mentioned, it's draftmas. We're, we're almost to the, to the first round of the MLB first-year player draft on Sunday. And to help us talk about that a little bit is uh, Mason McCray. He was going to help us do our draft guide that we did in 2019 and 2020 before everything shut down, but he's pretty plugged in, does a lot of stuff surrounding the draft. So we're going to talk about, you know, stuff like that and, you know, and see where things fall. Uh, it's going to be a pretty fun conversation. We'll have that after this. Joining Alex and I now is Mason McCray. We're going to talk a little draft. It's coming up on Sunday. Uh, we're very excited. I know you're very excited as well. You were going to help us in 2020 with the, the draft guide that obviously did not happen because we had pretty, basically no college season. So, uh, but you've done do a lot of work on your own site with your big boards and your mock draft 9.0 that just came out. Uh, but how's it going, man? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, in your latest mock, your mock draft 9.0, I looked at it today while I was on a break at work, and you had Kumar Rocker to the Royals at seven. Um, do you still think that's is that as I've talked about with uh, Joe Doyle and? Uh, you know, and some other people we've had on here, it feels like there's a lot of smoke around that. Is that something you still feel like is a legit possibility? Or with some of the things that we've seen with Rocker over the last couple of weeks, even though he's pitched relatively well, there's a lot more red flags and some cause for concern that people are beginning to realize. Does he fall beyond that? Or do you think that he's pretty well locked into that seven spot? Yeah, uh, it seems like there's like three spots he could end up going like the earliest being Boston at four, which I, when I heard it was kind of shocked just because of Boston being so new school and kind of rocker being more of like the makeup kind of track record, old school model type of fit. And uh, so Boston at four seems to be the earliest. And then just most people have had him going seven to KC for good reason, just because it makes a lot of sense with how they've drafted in the past because of his track record. And then I believe it was Fangraphs, Longenhagen and, uh, uh, Goldstein, I believe, mentioned him going 11 to the Nationals. So that's kind of been like the three spots that he's been connected to. And I think the most common has really been Kansas City at seven. So here's here's my take on this. And, and we're recording this on Tuesday night by Wednesday morning. Um, my Our newest and most updated board will be out. Um, and I mentioned in here, so if you're listening to this, you, you may have already read this, but it almost feels like there's too much connecting Rocker to the Royals. And, and, and I kept saying, it's like, how often in any league do all these mock drafts have no idea who's going to go one through six and everybody just nails the seventh pick, right? It's like, if you look at all these other mock drafts, you look at all these boards, and I was actually comparing your board in this article um, to Fangraphs, Baseball America, MLB Pipeline. Two of you have Meyer 1, you have Leiter 1, Baseball America has Lawler 1. 
None of you have the same prospect at the number two. Two of them have wider three, and then there's a difference there. And none of you guys have the same fifth overall prospect or sixth overall prospect or seventh overall prospect. So if there's so much uncertainty at the top, how confident can we be that everybody just has number seven figured out? It's just the rest of the draft we don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's, like, probably the problem with mock drafts. And I think people, like, like people just want to know what's going to happen to, like, set expectations for what will happen on the day. But, like, realistically, like, we have no idea. Like, there are teams right now who have a guy 10th on their board, and he'll end up being, like, fourth because of something the model ends up spinning out. And, like, I mean, a team last year literally drafted a guy, gave him, like, I think the third highest bonus in the draft, and they had him six on their board. And I think if they – like, four days before, the guy they took was, like, the third – highest ranked guy available on the day of the draft if you use the board from four days prior so like so much changes and I mean nowadays like most of these advisors don't give numbers anymore and most top prospects especially pitchers don't give up any medical information so like there's just so much stuff that changes it and I mean like an hour before the draft like some GM could literally just have a spot of the moment decision to like that changes the entire like selection they make so there's just so much to it and i mean like we're still pretty far out like it's five days away and i still think like no one has any idea what's going to happen to be honest so one thing i go back to with the royals is and by the way i i applaud this strategy is date Moore came out last year and maybe he was lying but it felt like the truth is they had asa lacy like one or two on their board overall and when he got to number four they said, screw everything else we'd planned on because we didn't think he was going to be here. He is clearly the best player on our board, right or wrong. We are taking him, and there's not really going to be another conversation about it. Do you feel like part of the reason that Rocker keeps winding up on all these mock drafts at number seven is there's a sense that the Royals have him that high on their board, like higher on their board than other teams. So if he gets to seven, the Royals are like, this is our guy. We're not passing on Kamar Rocker. Or do you think it's like the? Do you think the 2018 college draft, college pitching draft class of the Royals is still so fresh in, in everybody's minds that they can't get past it, and they just assume they'll take the best college pitcher available with their pick at number seven? Yeah, actually, I think it's like a combination of both. To be honest, it's like everyone just assumes, you know, like the Royals with college arms, right? The 2018 draft with what Singer, Coer, Lynch, and then. Uh, what was it, Bubik, the fourth guy? Yeah, Bubik like and I, then Bowen, too. Yeah, then Lacey last year. And I think most people believe the Royals are still somewhat old school. And so I think, like, when you think of Rocker and why he dropped, I think the fact that Kansas City isn't as big into the metrics, it makes somewhat sense in that way that they shouldn't be as concerned with it as other teams might, like, would be that high. Does the fact that Kowar and Lynch and even Bubich and Singer to a, to a lesser extent, does the fact that they have struggled semi-significantly at the big league level deter you at all from the Royals taking Rocker? Or are you of the opinion that GMs should be taking the best player available regardless of their developmental strengths? I think you got to consider, like, if you're, like, the Dodgers, you know, like, it's a little bit different where you guys just have a powerhouse of guys in your system to develop people. But if you're, like, the Rays who have had an issue developing hitters but can develop pitchers, I think that's something you have to consider. And so with the Royals, 
I mean, I can't speak as, as well as you can to the Royals and their strengths in the system, but it seems like they've been somewhat decent on the pitching side and have been somewhat rough on the hitting side. I don't, could you confirm, deny that? What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Up until this spring, I would have, I would have agreed with you, but I would say the, you know, the turnarounds of a Prado, of Melendez, the continued success that Bobby Wood Jr. is having is at least a sign that things are moving in the right direction. You know, they brought in Drew Saylor, who spent time uh, with the Dodgers organization. They brought in Alex Zumwalt. Um, you know, they, they've, they've made some moves that suggest that there is legitimate reason for, for change on the horizon there. Um, but up until this spring, I, I would have agreed with you in that regard. Okay. Yeah, I, I also think Rocker, to be honest, is kind of like a set-in-stone type of player. Like, he's kind of had the same body delivery and stuff for basically three years. Obviously, it's tatered between the stuff is kind of deferred at times. But, I mean, he's been the same fastball slider, change-up guy, and then obviously the cutter came around this year. So, I, I don't think he's a guy you need to develop, to be honest. I think you just need to kind of work on some strength stuff, maybe fix some of the, the pelvis at release and all the stuff with the lower half, I guess. But I think that's just kind of your typical pitching coach can kind of work around with. So if it's not rocker, so I, and, and by the way, so this is in our, this is in our, our article. Here's a, a roundup of the mock drafts real quick. ESPN, Fangraphs, Baseball America, CBS, MLB Pipeline, you and Jeff Ellis, who is on Twitter. I, do you follow Jeff? I do, yeah. yeah. So all of you guys have the Royals taking Kamar Rocker, which again, it just feels too good to be true. Like it feels like there's too much, like there's, like this is the one that everybody predicts and that everybody gets way wrong. So let's say that everybody is way wrong. Let's say that Prospects Live is right and the Royals go for a prep under slot because the Prospects Live has Will Taylor there at number seven. Let's say that everybody's wrong and the Royals go different directions. So I think the consensus top eight players are pretty, I think pretty well known by now. It's like Rocker, Leiter, Davis, Kowser in the, in the college ranks. And then you have Job in the prep shortstop. So like if it's not one of those guys, give me your best prediction of if the Royals go under slot, who are they under slotting at number seven? I think the best guess would be Sal Frelick, to be honest, that just, he's been connected there before and he's just kind of a safe college bat that I think usually they get pushed up the board, especially this year with just, I mean, just so much uncertainty, it seems like. I think Frella could be a guy. And then all along the same lines as Colton Kowser, who at least he – I mean, he's a mid-major type, but, like, he's played for Team USA, and he's performed extremely well, and he checks all the boxes as well. Those are two guys. And I think one of the sneakier guys, to be honest, could be House. I mean, like, Bobby Wood Jr., it's straight along that lines. Except, I mean, House is obviously a year younger on draft day, but, I mean, it's like a massive, moldable, power-first – prep bat that I mean everyone knew their name coming into the summer of the draft and then obviously house has dropped a little bit but Wood still had his thing so I guess he could house could be a guy to watch at seven he's been connected there but honestly I think he's probably gone before then and then the last guy I'm not sure if he's an underslot to be honest everyone assumes he's going to be a discount wherever that he gets drafted is Davis and I mean you got him in your prospects live mock draft and I don't think he falls that far, but then again, like it's, there's so much uncertainty. So he could end up dropping to seven if something crazy happens. So 
say the, the Royals decide to go college outfielder and they're between Colton Cowser and South Braylon. Where do you lean? I would probably say Colton Cowser because more people have had him connected to the Royals, to be honest. And he's had the Team USA performance to go along with all the, the three years of performance as well. Who do you prefer personally? Uh, I would take Frelick, to be honest. There's more data on him, so his max EV is higher, but I also think he gets to it more often. Higher contact rate against better performance, less swing and miss, less chasing, better numbers all around, I think, against better competition. What what can you attribute his power outage to from this spring? Just pit, uh, just pit, the way pitchers attacked him? No, just honestly bat speed. He has so much bat speed. It's probably plus above average. I mean, it's really, really good. Turns on balls quick. It's like I, I don't have blast data on him, but I'd assume he'd be a high rotational acceleration guy as well. So so this spring at Boston College, he kind of had a power outage there at the end of the year where early on he was hitting home runs. He hit a lot of doubles early on as well. And then it seemed like, if I remember right from his game logs, that actually came down. So if there was, you know – if in game there really was a power outage and that's legit, do you think that's something not to worry about because the raw power is good enough to make up for it? Or are you at all concerned that when he gets to the big leagues that he won't hit for enough power for it to matter? I honestly think his power is more suited for line drives types, not like fly balls, you know, the steep launch angle type of balls. I think he's more of a line drive oriented guy. So I'm not really worried about him having or not having power but I think he's going to hit balls hard. So he has the raw power. It's just about kind of catching balls out front so he can lift them more often, which I think is an approach thing that we've seen guys kind of implement mid-year. I mean, you saw Matt McClain do it. And there's, I mean, Robert Moore, who you guys are familiar with, that's basically along his lines too. He's a short guy that lifts balls because he catches it out front, not because of a swing so much so. So Frelick defensively is, I, I think we all agree he's going to stick in center field. Is he – does he have the potential to be like a fringe gold glove type out there, or is he just good enough to play and probably never going to win too many awards out there? Yeah, I'm not sure exactly if he's an all-day – like L, every single day center fielder or a center field, right field, second base, left field, third base type of player. Like he's played second base, and I know he's good in center field, but I just, maybe you could move him around to see if you can get more flexibility with him, but – I would play him in center field every single day. If it was up to me, he's good enough, really good in stinks, above average plus runner. I mean, it's, he's a really good defender, yeah. Gotcha. Okay, so moving away from the Royals here, let's go more big picture for the draft. Your board is obviously very different um, in comparison to some of these bigger boards, and so I'm going to read real quick your top ten. Um, number one, Jack Leiter. Number two, Khalil Watson. Number three, Brady House. Four, Henry Davis. Five, Marcella Meyer. Don't think too many people are arguing um, with the people in the top five. Maybe they don't agree in the order, but I don't think people are going to argue the top five. Number six, Trey Sweeney. Number seven, Sal Frelick. Number eight, Harry Ford. Number nine, Gage Jump. And number 10, Matt McClain. Um, talk, talk us through really quick. And, and I mentioned this in, our, in the article that the reason I include you um, on, the, on the huge board of comparing uh, ranks – there's fan graphs, Baseball America, MLB Pipeline, and your list is – I think you have a very data-driven, analytical look at what the draft is. I think you – even if people disagree, it could help expose some biases that people have as they view the draft. Um, 
and that, you know, I respect the work you do. And so I feel like it's just, it's just another good look to throw in some different ways that people look at the draft, but tell me about your process a little bit and, and kind of explain, you know, if there's a guy, so we'll, we'll go to Kumar rockers, number seven. Yeah. Number 17 on your board, how you look at some guys that some people are consensus top 10, how you could have them, you know, further down and where, Nobody else on this list has well Will Bednar, how you wound up with him number 11. So, so the kind of those processes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First of all, thank you for the kind words and including me. Uh, so yeah, my, it's mostly data driven to be honest. And of course you kind of have to include eye stuff because I mean, the way they move all matters and sometimes you can't even get data on some guys. So you just, you kind of have to eventually use your eyes, but uh, yeah. So I mean, lighter at first is kind of the, that's kind of been my consensus all year. I think there was a two and a half week span where Fabian was first and it was might've been like February, early February before the season started and there was fall ball going on. And then I got to see a game. So that, I mean, lighter has been one, one for the majority of the time. Watson has kind of been two, three ish for the last couple of months. I mean, just the blast data is so good. The swing is so good. I mean, it's just, athleticism he's probably the second best athlete in the class of the shortstops and then uh house at three this is kind of where like you can start like arguing and i'd probably agree with you like this is probably one big tier between house to the ford just house is one of the best athletes in the class and i think honestly the just his frame people kind of get lazy with evaluating his defensive stuff and they see his frame and think third base because he's not, he's just, just too big for shortstop, but he actually moves really well for the spot and he's a really good athlete. So that's why he's so high for me. He's also just so young. I mean, you compare him, him and Watson, a lot, they're both a year younger. they both have about eight miles an hour higher of bat speed. They have quicker rotation. They're better athletes. They hit more power. They hit, they hit balls in the air more often. I mean, they, they both do so many things more effectively than Lawler, which is why Lawler is kind of 12 on my board. I mean, He's probably the safest bet of those three to play short. But I also think it's a little bit of an eye test bias, to be honest, because he's he's kind of a new guy that hasn't been around for a while. But uh, so at four, we got Davis. And I mean, honestly, between Davis and Sweeney are so close metrically, but I give the edge to Davis because like he's done it against the best competition. And at some point, like, you kind of have to consider the fact that who they're facing against. And so that's why Davis, I mean, he doesn't swing a miss at all. He hits balls so hard. I think he has the most balls hit over 100 miles an hour. And the majority of them are pretty tight distribution-wise in the 0 to 20 degree range. And, I mean, him being at four, you could also argue him two to three on the board as well probably. Mayer at five, I think he of Lawler, House, and Watson is the worst athlete and the most likely to move to third base, to be honest. He's, he's not the most twitchy athlete, but I think he also has probably the second best swing of the four, just behind Watson, who I, I mean, I, I absolutely love Watson, so that's not a knock on Mayer. And then Sweeney at six, who I just talked about with, with Davis and him being so close to him. I mean, his numbers are so good. The sample is small on the data. I think it's about 40 balls in play in a trackman stadium this year, but I believe his average is around 98 to 100 miles an hour. His max is like 109.4. I mean, it's it's incredible what he's done. If he did play on the Team USA roster, I'd, I mean, you could start bringing him up into like the top three, four conversation. Of course, he didn't, though, because of the Cape. You know, last summer we had the Cape. But, uh, 
I mean, Sweeney, like for the Royals case, I would consider him at seven without a doubt because you could try and buy a prep guy down into the second round for them. Whether that would be like a Will Taylor type who prospects live mock to you guys, then I don't know. But, I mean, that's someone I absolutely love. The strategy you could build a draft around with him is kind of fun. And then, so, uh, really quick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you at Trey Sweeney because Trey Sweeney, I think people are going to – our listeners will balk, and I, and I want to – fill in some added context you know the the data is one thing Trey Sweeney this year at Eastern Illinois which is he was a teammate of Will Klein so the Royals have definitely seen Trey Sweeney because they were scouting Will Klein last year so Trey Sweeney this year 14 home runs 10 doubles he hit 382 with a 522 on base a 712 slug a 1234 OPS he only struck out in 10% of his plate appearances. He walked in over 20% of his plate appearances in 48 games. Now, I agree with you. Looking at those numbers, listening to what you just said about the data, the fact that Trey Sweeney, I'm going to go back and look at the boards. Trey Sweeney is not in the top 25 of anybody else's board. So, Mason, this is a, I think this is a good point of why I bring you into these other, into these other lists combined is what – what am I missing? What is everybody else missing about Trey Sweeney? I just think he's a mid-major bat who never played for the U.S. or on the Cape. And so people are a little bit scared. You know, last year Gonzalez, but he – I mean, didn't he win the MVP on the Cape Cod? So it's like – it's a little bit different with him. Like, he's also probably the similar defensively, too, to Gonzalez. He played short, but he probably will move to third base or second base. Like, it's honestly really, really similar to Gonzalez. The difference is Gonzalez – did have a larger data, which is kind of funny given the, the shortened season last year. But that's like kind of the similar the similarity for him for like a different like draft prospect from a different year, to be honest. And just like I, I just feel safe with these college bats, to be honest, which is what most people feel. Like I was talking to someone the other day, just like you know, like do I move Sweeney up or not? Like he's so good, like I. So, eventually, I did move him up just because, like, he's probably one of the best players in this draft, to be honest. So, again, for, for our listeners that maybe don't follow Mason on, on Twitter, he's at Mason underscore McRae. Um, and this is why I bring in, you know, for, for even as a Royal-centric site, I bring in an alternate perspective is nobody else has Trey Sweeney this high. And I think a lot of people go, oh, that's not a name I'm familiar with. What are the Royals doing? When if you just took, you know, two minutes to listen to Mason talk about the batted ball data and now you look at the numbers on his baseball cube website, like, I mean, there are some players who I always feel like the majority of people miss on for, for a number of, of biases. But then there's also, like, as folks were coming off fan graphs and we, you, you and I kind of had conversations about – or I'm sorry, I was reading my page – as folks were kind of coming down on Kamar Rocker, Mason, you and I had conversations about Rocker, and I would ask, what am I missing? Like, what am I, what am I not seeing? And you turned me on to a few things, and I went back and watched, went back and read what Fangraphs wrote about him, went back and read what Baseball America wrote about him, watched it for myself, and I'm like, okay, now I get it. Like, I see, I see. Um, so I do think that sometimes people miss for a, a number of biases that are sort of inexplicable and um, – it seems to me like Trey Sweeney fits that bill perfectly because like you said, um, 
the numbers are outstanding, and he is a college bat that will play on the infield somewhere. I guess a non-first base type. So, um, you know, really interesting perspective, and um, I, I do appreciate that. Um, you know, a little tidbit there. Yeah, no problem. Well, Mason, this has been fantastic. We really appreciate your insight and the the process that you bring. Everybody's a little bit different. Everyone's got their, you know, their pros and their cons for how they evaluate players, and yours is is very unique, and that's why we love to have you on. Uh, thank you so much. Before we get you out of here, uh, we ask this question to everybody on our podcast. Uh, if you could go back and watch one moment in baseball history live in person, what would it be? Uh, I was there for it, so I guess I wouldn't be there back in person, but uh, or I wouldn't be going back in person, but it was the Bautista Batflip probably. I mean, that was probably the greatest thing I've ever witnessed in my entire life. Ooh. You were at that game? I was, yeah. I lost my <laughs> shoe. It fell off and went like two rows in front of me. <laughs> Man, that like listening to the stadium erupt in that <laughs> moment is so funny. Yeah, it's just it's amazing. It's I've amazing. watched that video a bunch of times. Yeah, it's the greatest thing. Ever. My one of my best friends is a Rangers fan, and that <laughs> moment is just burned into his brain in this horrible spot. So every once in a while, I just send him a gift with a bat flip just to give him a little bit of shit because it's just so good. And like I know people may not a lot of people don't like Jose Bautista, whatever. The bat flip is amazing. The home run's iconic. Like that moment is just so cool. Couldn't agree more. All right. Well, well, thank you so much, man. Again, we really appreciate your time. And uh, Merry Draftmas. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thanks, mate. Real quick. Thanks once again to Mason McCray. That was really fun insight. He has a very unique board compared to uh, a lot of other people, so it was good to hear his insight. And I, I see a lot of his process, and it's very interesting. And I – Trace Sweeney really intrigues me now. I don't, I, don't, I don't think he's in play at seven, like, at all. But as a dude that fits kind of a Royals-type profile and a dude that just sneaks under the radar is very intriguing. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, with that coming up, I do want to, you know, keep, everybody keep in mind that the, the fact that there wasn't a 2020 summer season means that there really could be – some things that happen on draft day that are unexpected and, and kind of catch a lot of people by surprise. And so if the Royals don't take Kamar Rocker and he's there at number seven, like let's not all freak out and, you know, <laughs> start calling for heads right away because there is so much we don't know. And there is so much information we don't have. And, and, and you talk about like that, like, I think Mason's made a good case for a player who's not on people's boards to be one of the better players, one of the better hitters in the draft. Um, so, again, context, information, no 2020 season could make for a wild Sunday. But I think that's just a reason to tune in. Like the draft being there in Colorado during the All-Star festivities is absolutely fantastic. And I'm so happy Major League Baseball finally got around to doing something like this I think if you're not going to have it in Omaha for the College World Series, at least have it in, you know, Colorado for the All-Star festivities. Um, Joel and I on Sunday are planning on, um, in, in some capacity, having a live um, little Periscope event. Um, so we'll be on Periscope. It'll be on. It'll be posted on Twitter. Um, Joel and I may be together. We may not be yet. We're still working on that. In theory. We will be, you know, sitting down, watching the draft together, periscoping so that you guys can kind of see our reactions, talk with you very quickly about who got drafted where, 
what this means for the Royals, and then, you know, be, between each pick, kind of wind down, okay, who's left, blah, blah. Obviously, you're going to have this on MLB Network. You're going to have this on ESPN, um, whatever avenue you choose to watch the drafts on. But I feel like giving a Royal-centric take on it, just the first seven picks, maybe the first ten, um, would be really good to help you understand how it affects the Royals. So, like, if it's – I don't know who's going to be on the ESPN broadcast, but let's say it's um, – um, Eduardo, uh, Eduardo Eduardo Perez or Harold Reynolds or Greg Amsinger. I don't know who they're going to have, but they're going to be talking about, you know, who Texas just got and how this affects Texas. And while they're talking about the Texas Rangers taking Jack Leiter, we'll be talking about what that means for the Royals, who could fall to the Royals, and um, hopefully give you a, a very Kansas City-centric view on the draft and just kind of talking with you live uh, through the draft as well. Yeah, and then after that, the following day, which you, you can expect at some point on Monday, is some sort of – it'll be a live reaction because outside will, will record it once we hop off that periscope. It'll be a little more of an expansive take on that first-round pick and what it means for the organization now, maybe an early look at where we might put him in our top 50 and, and go from there. But we'll have some sort of podcast for you as well as that Zoom call or that, uh, that periscope uh, on Sunday and Monday. Yep, and like I said, uh, tonight is Tuesday night, but uh, on Wednesday morning you will have had access to our final draft rankings. And, you know, in, included in this final draft rankings piece, if you haven't read it yet and you're listening to this, are links to our prior two draft rankings, how to watch the MLB draft, where the Royals are picking, a link to the draft tracker, um, a roundup of all the mock drafts that I could find, a couple different – there's four big boards of everybody's top 25s in here, um, and then our updated top 25 with a list of thoughts afterwards, including why did we drop Kamar Rocker to number four? Um, why, does, why is somebody like Isaac Pacheco still in our top 25 when he's not on other boards? So an explanation of our thoughts and hopefully um, everything you'll need to kind of watch the draft uh, as an educated fan on Sunday night. Absolutely. We, we look forward to this. Uh, we really didn't do much for this last year. Obviously, with no 2020 season, we didn't have a lot to go off of. So uh, it's a lot more exciting that we had a full prep season, full college season, and the Royals are going to get better here in a couple of days. So it's going to be pretty exciting. Uh, it's going to be exciting for us. This is really what our site kind of – Sunday is really what our site revolves around. It's the Futures game. Yeah, Nick Prado, Bobby Wood Jr. playing in that, and then the draft on the same day. So it's a really cool day for us at this site. For everybody that follows this, follows the site, thank you so much once again. And uh, be sure to follow us if you don't already at Royals Farm. We will talk to you all on Sunday and then Monday. Take care.